All right, let's uh, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for the time to gather together today and and to open your word together. And uh, we pray that this will be a profitable time for all of us. And uh, we we pray that we do pray that things are going well with 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 John and Kathy uh, and their their dilemma. And we miss them and uh, pray for them as well. So we thank you for uh, how you bless us in so many ways, and we're we're blessed to be together here uh, today. And we thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to. For some of you, this is going to be kind of a throwback uh, Sunday. There, there are at least a couple of you in here that, uh, well, maybe maybe two or three. If you if you were at Grace Bible Church, <laughs> if you were at Grace Bible Church ten years or more ago, um, and there, I know there aren't very many of you, but uh, when we were at Young Street. Um, there was a Sunday, we only had one adult Sunday school class, and uh, we, we were going through one particular book, and uh, it was taking quite a while to get through that book because it's a long book. And so that room that we met became known as the Deuteronomy Room. I don't even remember what the number of the room was, but it was called the Deuteronomy Room because that's where the Deuteronomy Sunday School class met. <laughs> and, and Bob's trying to recall this now, that it was so long ago. <laughs> Was that 160? Okay. I couldn't remember the number, so it was the 160 room, but we... <laughs> so we're, gonna, we're, uh, we're going to open our Bibles to Deuteronomy today, and uh, in particular, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and the, um, uh, this is right after 5. Notice how I got the math right. And uh, in chapter 5, that's where the, the Ten Commandments are presented. Uh, and you're thinking, wait a minute, the Ten Commandments, isn't that in Exodus? Yes, but they are presented again in Deuteronomy. Uh, the, the, the name of this book, Deuteronomy, literally means second law. It's the giving of the law a second time. And um, who, who are the BTI graduates in here? So, you know, I'm not, you know, you guys are like, yeah, this is old news. You don't need to tell, tell us about these things. But this is, this is the, the, the uh, giving the law a second time. So it's not a second law that's different from the law that was given in Exodus um, to Moses to hand down to the people. But it's a restatement of the law is what's happening in Deuteronomy. A restatement of these laws. Because the, 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 the setting of Deuteronomy is the Israelites are camped on the east bank of the Jordan River, just a little north of the Dead Sea. And they are finally going to be going in to Canaan, which they were instructed to do 40 years before that. But they were disobedient and they didn't go in, and because of their disobedience, they were uh, God had them wandering around for forty years, and finally brings them to this point. And those men and those people who were disobedient at the time, forty years prior, were also uh, informed that in, in Numbers, I think Numbers thirteen fourteen, that you will not enter the land because of your disobedience. You will die here in the desert in your wandering and you will not go in. Except for two people. Do you remember the two people who will be able to go in? So we have Caleb and Joshua who will be able to go in. Moses won't. In the end of Deuteronomy, Moses uh, uh, dies. So two will go in, but when this is written, when Moses is addressing, and that's what the book of Deuteronomy is, is addressing the Israelites before they go in. A series of addresses, a series of messages. And Moses is giving them the law again, because everybody else who had heard it the first time, they're dead. And you have nobody left but the people who'd never heard it the first time. 
except for those two. And so this needs to be restated again to these people before they go into the land of Canaan. You need to hear this. You need to hear about how you need to love the Lord your God, how you need to be obedient to the laws that he has given you. You need to show love and obedience to the Lord. And that's where we're picking up the action in chapter 6. Is that There's been a kind of a preamble before that in, in, in chapters 1 through 4. A preamble. And when I, the reason I say preamble is because a lot of theologians look at Deuteronomy as, as, as modeled after a treaty. The, a, uh, a Hittite treaty is uh, the Hittite, Hittites were a civilization at the time, and it's modeled after a treaty form that they used of a suzerain and vassal, suzerain being the sovereign ruler of the people, and then the vassals who were supposed to be in complete obedience to that sovereign. And so here we have that kind of a model, God being the sovereign, the suzerain, and the people of Israel, Israel, the vassals. And so Moses is saying, this is what your sovereign says you must do. The, this is the law of God. This is what... And, and then we, he goes into stating the law in a general form in the, first, uh, in, the first, uh, in the chapters from 5 through 11. A general statement of the law. And then in chapters 12 through 26, very, very specific laws, uh, case laws uh, uh, for the attorneys out there, uh, and, and going into very, very specific things. So this is where we're picking it up here is the, is the, the restating the law. And in this case, chapter 6, we're, we're looking at uh, uh, the greatest commandment. <laughs> and so let's pick it up in uh, chapter 6, and we're gonna, let's read verses 4 through 9. And I'm a, I'm a late adopter, by the way. Probably every single person in here has the legacy, and I'm still in ESV. I'm, a, I'm, I'm always on the late edge of all these things. I guess I like to say I don't like to be on the bleeding edge. I'd rather, I'd rather have all the wounds healed first and, <laughs> and then go in. So, so I'm, 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 I'm still ESV. Sorry about that if that's going to offend anybody, but I'm sure you'll be okay. So, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, for those of you BTI graduates and Hebrew scholars, what is this passage known as? The Shema. The Shema. <laughs> That's exactly right. As a matter of fact, the first word in this passage here. That's the translation of the word, the Hebrew word, Shema. And so, Shema, O Israel, is basically what's being said here, uh, if you were to read it that way. So, this is known as the Shema, the Hebrew word for hear, which begins the passage. And this is not a suggestion uh, when we read this. It's not, it's not like, um, come take a listen if you want. You know, that's, that's not the sense here. Uh, it's not a suggestion. It's an imperative. It's a command to obey, just as a parent would command a child, you listen to me now. <laughs> There's no option here. You must listen. You must listen and obey. Uh, just as a parent might uh, talk to a child. And this is how Moses begins this passage, commanding the Israelites to hear this law that, that God has given, uh, has given to them. The Shema is a statement of command that demands not only hearing, but a response of action uh, from the hearer. So not just hearing, but also doing, which reminds us of James 1.22, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Verses 4 and 5 provides a facet of what it means really to be a Christian. 
remember, you, you might be thinking, wait a minute, Christian, we're in the Old Testament, this is to the Israelites, uh, how, do, how do we all of a sudden jump to being a Christian? Well, remember, we're grafted in. We're grafted in <laughs> to Israel. So we can say that. This is addressing us. And if you were to, to look at Jesus' uh, statements from the Old Testament, anytime he referenced the Old Testament, uh, if, if, uh, if someone were to ask you, what book was, do you think Jesus was referencing when he referenced those Old Testament strict scriptures? You would probably, most of the time, if you said Deuteronomy, be on pretty safe ground. You'd probably be right. Even though you might have no idea, you'd just say, Deuteronomy. Yep, that's right. Because <laughs> he referenced Deuteronomy a lot. And, if, and if, if that wasn't right, the next go-to would be Psalms. So if, <laughs> you're probably going to be <laughs> pretty safe with, uh, with those two. But, uh, but Jesus referenced Deuteronomy a lot. The New Testament has over uh, 100 references from Deuteronomy in, in the New Testament. So this really is a facet when we read these first two verses, 4 and 5, of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian displays his love for God in in all aspects of his life. And we love God. To be a Christian is to love God. Jesus himself, when asked, what is the greatest commandment, he recited these verses. These are the verses he recited in uh, the Gospel of Matthew and Mark and Luke. He recited the Shema. Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Um, I've already talked about uh, the kind of the structure of, of Deuteronomy and, and how this is really giving the people of Israel the law a second time, but really it was the first time because most of these people had never heard it before. Their parents had died. They're the ones who received it the first time. And so Israel is really just putting into place, when you, go, when you cross the Jordan and go in to take the land, you need to remember these things. You re- need to remember what it means to be obedient. You need to remember what it means to love God as you go in to the land and take this land. <clears throat> and again, it's in that form of a of a of a treaty. The um, uh, uh, I've already talked about the the fact that the, these chapters five through eleven present more general principles, and specific laws are are spelled out in in uh, chapters twelve through twenty six. I thought it'd be interesting just to look at that if you were to skip over a few pages beginning to in chapter twelve. <clears throat> Chapter 12 begins by saying, These are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord your God of your fathers has given you to possess. So he's, he's starting out by saying, I'm going to give you a whole list here of things that you need to, uh, to do. And verse 2 says, You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, small letter G. Their gods, you shall tear them, tear down their altars, and dash them to pieces. Um, I'm going to skip way ahead just for a couple, a couple times here. Verse 13: Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there shall you do all that I am commanding you. Over to chapter 13. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and a sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. Uh, And it goes on. There's very specific things That are um, that are given here in this in these uh, chapters twelve through twenty six, over to chapter fourteen, um, verse twenty. All clean winged things you may eat. You shall not eat anything that has died naturally. Verse two. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Verse twenty two. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes. 
<clears throat> from the field year by year. So you can see there are very specific things that, that they're, they're being given. Very specific cases. It, it's almost like a lawyer looking at his you know, rows and rows of books and the, of case law looking for, okay, what do I do in this case? Oh, here's, here's the case I can cite. And that's what's being done here, is being laid out, is case law. Very specific things that uh, is being laid out to the people. Back to, back to the ranch, where we are in chapter 6, it's a little more general. It's a little more general and not specific. Um, not specific things. <clears throat> the Ten Commandments, just before this, if we were to back up to chapter 5, we would read the, the, the Decalogue, the, t- the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments can be, really be viewed as a table of contents for all the specific case law that's given later. A table of contents for the specific law that will follow. The Ten Commandments give a very concise description of covenant principles, basic principles that define the character of God and Israel's responsibilities. But the Ten Commandments are a compression of the entire law. A compression of the entire law. And the Shema is a compression of the Ten Commandments. What is the greatest commandment? And all the Ten Commandments and all the law is compressed into this one concept. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your strength. It's all compressed into that one concept, the Shema. This is the heart of all the law, which is why, the, which is why Jesus would recite the Shema when asked about the greatest commandment. And even to this day... The observant, those Jews who are, are observant, recite the Shema at least twice daily. It's, it's a regular part of their routine to recite the Shema as, as something that they do in their life. So let's look at this a little, close, a little more closely. Uh, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One uh, commentator wrote that in this verse, Israel was invited uh, to hear or to respond. But again, this was not an invitation. This was a, a command. This is more than inv- an invitation. It's not a suggestion. It's in the imperative form of the word. It means to hear in obedience to a command. So this is the greatest commandment, not the greatest invitation. You are commanded to hear, not just invited to hear. This is something you must do. But in the Hebrew, um, there are only four words that follow after hear, O Israel. Command, hear this, listen to me. And the four words that follow in the Hebrew are Yahweh Elohim and Yahweh Ehad. Yahweh Elohim, Yahweh Ehad, which literally means the Lord our God, the Lord one. The Lord our God, the Lord one. In the Hebrew, it's only four words. The verbs are left out in the Hebrew, which makes it a a little bit of a challenge uh, to understand the intended meaning. Most scholars agree with the form, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Where in the Hebrew it's just said, it's just Yahweh Ehad, which means the Lord one. But most scholars agree of inserting the word is, the the verb is there, the Lord is one in that second section. The uh, New American Standard actually puts is in the first part as well. So it would be the, the Lord is our God and the Lord is one in the New American Standard. In the book of Mark, Mark 12 28 to 29, we read this, that then one of the scribes came, came to Jesus, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, asked Jesus, what is the first commandment of all? And Jesus answered him, the first of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And that's how it's written in, in Mark, using that verb is in that second part, which gives some more weight to, to that. It was probably the, the correct meaning to say that, that the Lord is one. Uh, verb placement is one ambiguity. Another one would be 
the use of the word one itself at the end of verse 4, that the, the Lord is one. Some scholars have theorized that this was given as a name for God. This was uh, God's uh, 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 name. God is one literally meant his name was equated with, the, God's name was equated with the word one. The, but the Hebrew word ehad, meaning one, is, is used over 700 times in the Old Testament and in, in many different contexts and meanings, which is why uh, scholars would have many, many different points of view on, on what, it, what it meant. Genesis 2.24 uh, is it's used to mean uh, unified as one when Adam and Eve became one flesh, for example. Uh, so there are lots and lots of... I'm not going to go through all 700. I'll just do that one. <laughs> uh, so what did it mean to Israel, though, as they heard this? So what did this mean to them when they heard this? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It'd be good to look at the context of what has already taken place. What's gone on before this? What's gone on before? What's already taken place? In the context of the Ten Commandments, verse 4 is the positive expression of the first two commandments. The first two commandments, you shall, may, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall, make, you shall not make any image or likeness of anything that is in heaven or above or is on the earth below or that is under the water. You shall not bow down and serve them, for I am a jealous God." No other gods before me. No graven images. The Shema, in verse 4, would have been easily then recognizable to Israel as a statement of those first two commandments. They would hear that and go, oh, Ten Commandments, first two. First two. That's what's being said here. They are to worship God alone, no other gods. And they are not to represent God in another form. God alone, with no other representation, is who He is. And that is God. And as I was reading this and, and um, thinking about it, I thought, I wonder if these young people, were any of them old enough to remember how Israel blew it and did have other, the, the golden calf incident? Did any of them recall that? And that's just a rhetorical question. I'm not going to answer it. <laughs> but did they recall that <clears throat> when they when they're when Moses is presenting this to them? Oh yeah, mom and dad really blew it. Let's not blow it. Let's us not mess up because <laughs> the way mom and dad did, <clears throat> and they're not going to get to go into the into the promised land. Also in the context of Israel's experiences, the uniqueness and incomparability of God. Um, a few verses that describe God's uniqueness and His incomparability. Exodus 8.10 And He said, Let it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord your God. Concerning his, God's uniqueness. Exodus 9.14 for at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Exodus 15.11 Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Small liturgy. Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonder, wonders? Deuteronomy 3.24 O Lord God, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God, small letter G, is there in heaven and on earth who can do anything like your works and your mighty deeds? In Mark 12.32, So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God and there is no other but He. Israel had first-hand experience of a one-of-a-kind, unique God, their God, Yahweh, who carried them from Egypt while the gods of the Egyptians remained silent, while everything was going on around them. The only true God, Yahweh, was their God, and the explicit rendering of the verses doesn't, even though the uniqueness not, might not be expressed in, in uh, 
ex- uh, exactly in the Shema, the context supports that. This also means God was unique. It was, this was God, Yahweh was their only God, and He is a unique God. There's no, none other like Him. All the weird things that other nations parade in front, in front, um, are can't compare with the uniqueness of Yahweh. <clears throat> like the first two commandments, a reading of verse four explicitly makes a statement about also makes a statement about monotheism. Even though the nations had a circus of gods <laughs> that, that they called on, there is only one true God. Uh, another way to, to think about the Shema is this in verse four: "The Lord is your only God. The Lord is your only God." And the Lord is the only God. He is your God. He's the only God. Your God and the only God. He's unique. And He is singular. There's only one. He does not have multiple representations. He is not the first among others that are lesser. There are none less, there are none greater, there are no representation. God stands alone. In, um, uh, and you're thinking, well, since we're in the Old Testament, and uh, Steve is preaching a lot from the Old Testament about the millennium, what does the millennium have to do with this? That's all in your minds, right? So I'll give you a Zechariah verse. <laughs> so, Zechariah 14, Zechariah 14.9 quotes Deuteronomy 6.4. Zechariah 14.9 And the Lord shall be king and so this is, this is looking towards the millennium and the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one the Lord is one his name one we will hear the Shema in the millennial kingdom during the days of Moses and in the future, the intent that there is one God alone is very clear. Uh, we, we, and because of this, we have a clear statement of monotheism. But it's important to put Yahweh, God, and monothe- monotheism in the correct order. The correct order. The concept of monotheism does not define Yahweh. Monotheism doesn't define Yahweh. In other words, men thousands of years ago didn't make a decision. I think that there should just be one God. Let's have Yahweh be just the one God. That's the that's backwards. That's not the right order. Man does not make that decision. <laughs> Yahweh defines what monotheism is. Yahweh does not come from a man-made idea of God that could possibly include peop- guys like Allah Buddha, etc. Yahweh is not just another personality from those kind of roots. Yahweh created man and is the very definition of monotheism so that any one thing claiming divine nature in any way is false, such as Allah or Buddha. Those are false gods. Those aren't gods. So Yahweh is our only God, and Yahweh is the only God. He's our only God. He's the only God. And so we glean this from verse 4. The uniqueness and soulness of of God. Verse 5, then, we we get into how this plays out. How does this play out? What's the action on our part? And in verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So this is how our how the fact that there's only one God, our God, the only God. What's our reaction? Love God. We are to love God with all our heart and our soul and our strength. The Shema means to hear. It's a command. Uh, and a major theme in Deuteronomy, th- probably the major theme in Deuteronomy, is obedience. After all, what is Deuteronomy all about? It's about restating the law. And what are we to do with laws? Obey them. 
<laughs> and so it's, 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 it's natural. That's what this is all about. That's what Deuter- Deuteronomy is all about. Obedience. Obey. Obey what God has given you. In, in verses 1 through 3 and of, of chapter 6 and throughout the book, we see that obedience leads to a longer life, a profitable life, a growing nation, and a rich nation, all by obedience to the covenant law. But, <laughs> as you read that, oh, you're gonna, this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. Sure, I'll love God because of that, and that's the, and that's the problem. Is, and that's, that is a problem is I'll love God because he's going to do this and this and this and this for me. So I'll love him. Uh-uh. We got it backwards. Uh, that's not why you love God. Uh, we we lo- our our motivation for obedience is loving God because we love God. Because we love God, that's our motivation for obedience. Why am I going to obey? Not because I'm expecting anything. Um, what, what's, what, do we, what do we call that these days uh, when the, uh, the uh, prosperity gospel <clears throat> uh, uh, I'm going to you know just call on the name of the Lord and you know say you're going to you love him you're going to hmm? name it and claim it yeah the name it and claim it so you know this is the anti name it and claim it no you're going to obey God because you love him no matter what your circumstance because your circumstance, the Lord might put you in a bad circumstance. Um, think of uh, Heman in Psalm 88. Bad circumstance. The poor guy, you know, nothing good in that chapter. <laughs> that He goes, think of Job. And, and the circumstances that he had. Um, a lot of us look at our own circumstances sometimes and think... Yeah, I, I cannot predicate my love for God on my circumstances. If I do that, I've got it backwards, and I'm going to, uh, I'm going to look, I'm probably going to decide that God has failed me, which is a false way of looking at it. What has God done for you that you know is the most important thing, no matter what? He saved you. He saved you. And everything here on earth is temporal. While we're here, it's our entire life, but in eternity, it's a vapor. It's like, oh, did that happen? <laughs> I guess it did. <laughs> did that happen? <clears throat> and, and, and life is a vapor. And so our motivation for obedience is because we love God. And obedience is the major theme. To love God stands um, right next to the... Uh, Obedience stands right next to this theme of loving God. Uh, This is the response that God expects from us. Obedience and love are virtually synonyms here. We remember the words of Jesus in John 14, 15. If you love me, what? (coughs) Keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Not, if I do this and this and this for you, will you keep my commandments? No. If you love me, Keep my commandments. The love expected in Deuteronomy is not just an emotion. It's a commitment that demands action or response. In the Gospels, when Jesus recites this verse, uh, he uses the Greek word agapao. Agapao. The love leading to sacrifice or obedience. Agapao love. Where you do something, you sacrifice your obedience. It's doing the right thing at the right time for the right reason. Doing the right thing at the right time for the right reason. Agapao love. Love stemming from reason and intellect, not feelings or emotions, which is phileo love. Not not the emotion part of it. Agapao love is the verb form, while the word that we often think of love in the Bible, agape love, that's the, the noun form of this type of love. Agapao is the action, the verb form. Agape is the the thing form, a noun, person, place, or thing. So agape is the thing form of this. A good example would be John 59. As the Father loved me, as the Father agapao me, I have also loved you. Agapao you. Action. 
I've loved you with actions. Abide in my love, agape. The second half of verse 5 instructs to what degree we are to love. How are we to love? And the answer is, with our entire being and essence, totally. We are to love God in the same fashion that He loves us. He died for us. And that's a big challenge. Huge. The, the Bible often challenges with, with, with huge, huge challenges. And this is another one of them. Love God in the same fashion that He loved us. It's kind of like in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 where it says, Pray without ceasing. How do you do that? How do you pray and never stop? And so I'm not going to, that's again a rhetorical question. It should be answered in your mind. But that's a challenge, isn't it? How do you never stop praying? I'll give you kind of an answer. It's an attitude. (laughs) It's an attitude. As as this is also, It's, it's, it's our daily walk. It's our worthy walk. With, with the Lord. So we're to love God with the say, in the same fashion that He loves us. That's a challenge. And of course, we're not going to get there until we're in glory. <laughs> we're not going to get there until we're glorified. It's, uh, we, we know that, don't we? Every single one of us know that, okay, you know, I, I know that I did not show love for God in this way today, uh, it, just in my behavior. Um, and so we're not good, we're, we're always going to be working on our sanctification. Our sanctification is definitely progressive. But still, we are commanded to do this. This is still what we strive for. This is the goal. This is the goal. And if, if, if the goal is here, and we can actually be right here, before we actually get there 100%, great! You know, if you're looking for 100%, which is going to be, you're in glory, you're in heaven, and you got to 99.9, great. (laughs) You know, that's what we strive for, is that. The good news is that obedience to this command is inherited, inherent rather, (laughs) I guess it kind of is inherited too, uh, inherent in a regenerated heart. If you are a true believer, if you are regenerated, then uh, this is not as difficult because we love, because we want to, not because we have to. We love because we want to love, because that's what's in our heart. We want to do that. That's what we want to do. Do we always do what we want to? No. Just like Paul had that struggle. I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't want to do the things I do. And there's that struggle. Uh, within us. But with a regenerated heart, we know what obedience means, and that's what we strive for. And we, we love God because we want to love God, not because we have to, but because we want to. So the love for God comes from a regenerated heart, regenerated by the Holy Spirit. The heart in Hebrew, this is kind of interesting, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. So, kind of picking those words apart, heart, when we think of somebody giving, uh, giving their, the heart, kind of a heart attitude, often we think of more an emotional type of thing. But in the Hebrew, the heart was not the center of emotions and feelings that we think of today, but it was the seat of intellect, and will, and intention. It was the mind, your intellect. That's what they meant when they said, your heart. Use your mind. Think about this. Use your mind here. This would be equivalent to to the mind or that part that shapes the character, the choices, decisions that we make. Use your mind when you're making decisions. Use your mind when you're thinking about what's the best choice here. In the Gospels, the word mind is actually used as well as the word heart. So, instead of using heart, they might have actually used the word mind. And look at uh, how Matthew and Mark and Luke um, uh, explain the Shema or revisit the Shema when Jesus... uh, 
is asked the question, what's the greatest commandment? Deuteronomy says, heart, soul, and strength. Matthew says, heart, soul, and mind. Mark says, heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Luke says, heart, soul, strength, and mind. There's, it's like, well, which one do I pick? <laughs> well, the, the sentiments are all the, are there. In all, in all three of those, in all four of those, starting with Deuteronomy, even with hearts of the original, heart, soul, and strength, uh, the, the correct sentiment is there with all of those. Heart is talking about the mind. The soul is most often used to express those emotions, your inner self emotions and desires of a person. Today, to us, that sounds more like heart. Uh, and so even if we got them switched around, we'd be okay. Because he's basically saying, use both. Use your mind and your emotions. Emotionally and intellectually, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love the Lord your God with your mind and your emotions. And then he says, with strength, with might. This, is, this would be Moses' way of saying, give 110%, which of course we know is impossible to do. I could read David Grant's mind. You can't give 110%. <laughs> but, but of course we hear that all the time. Give 110%. This is Moses' way of saying that. Is, uh, the, the, the Hebrew word here uh, for strength is the Hebrew word meod, M-E-O-D, which means in your very muchness, exceedingly or great, greatly, with all your might, as much as you can muster, with your intellect and your emotions, love God. Think about it this way. In every aspect of your life, you don't have a little closet here where uh, God can't be here. No, you don't hide things. You give everything to the Lord. Everything. A total commitment. So, we see that even though, like I said, we, we have <laughs> the, the Gospels giving different orders, it, it's, it really means all the same, whether you read it in Deuteronomy or read it in Matthew or Mark or Luke. With your mind, with your emotions, as in your very muchness, in all your strength that you can muster, love God. Love the Lord your God and obey Him. Now finally, in verses 6, and actually to the end of the chapter, we're, we're only going to verse 9, but from 6 on, teach these things. Teach these things. Moses gives guidelines on the protection and the preservation of the law in their lives. In other words, they're going into the land of Canaan this law must be preserved. This law must be protected. You have to remember these things. And this is how you're going to do it. You're going to teach this to your children. The commandments were to be on their hearts, their minds, constantly. The meaning in heart in the Old Testament, again, was more not so much emotional, but, but the intellect or rational side of a person. The Israelites are to learn the covenant law with serious, mindful study. Verse 7 speaks about the depth of the teaching. The teaching isn't a quick overview of the high points or a Reader's Digest version. The law is to be taught diligently, meaning here that the words would be inscribed with sharpness and precision as an engraver would etch in a stone. God wrote the law in a stone. <laughs> this was to be inscribed on their hearts, just it was inscribed on that stone, inscribed in their minds. The teaching was to be deep and ongoing, consistent and constant. Repetition, whether they're at home or away from home, or when they get up, or before they, uh, before they go to bed. I, uh, I was thinking about when we would take road trips, we would, often, we would often put in a tape. We'd put a MacArthur tape in. And I remember on one trip, we did the whole um, Battle for the Beginning series and about creation. <laughs> and I think that, I don't know, did we, did we do the whole, were we able to complete the whole series on that road trip of 20,000 hours of... <laughs> the jet tour through Revelation was better. That was just one message. <laughs> so the... Um, but you were, this was to be taught 
constantly kind of reminds us of the the uh, Thessalonians five verse: pray without ceasing. Be in that continual attitude. Be in that continual attitude of obedience to the law and loving the Lord. Verses 8 and 9 speak of the law as symbols on their hands, on their frontlets, door frames, and gates. Most likely this was meant figuratively, but the Jews came to literally do these things, and, and observant Jews still practice this today. Uh, things called phylacteries or tefillin are worn by Jews during prayers on their arms, right above the elbow or on their foreheads, above the hairline. Uh, the word frontlet literally means to go around or to bind. Um, these were referred to in Matthew 23 when Jesus was pointing out the hypocrisy of the scribes, the scribes and the Pharisees. In Matthew 23, 55, or 5 rather, but all their works they do is seen by men, so they they see these things that they've tied to themselves, are seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. So they put all these things on their garments and they attach these things to their arms. See what a prayerful person I am. See what I've done. Good thing we couldn't read their minds, though, because it would be dark. Jews place a mezuzah on their doorposts. We have a mezuzah. We haven't put it on our doorposts yet, though. But uh, that would contain things like the Shema. You know, if you have a Jewish friend who has a mezuzah on their doorpost, uh, they, what verses do you have in there? They, they probably, one of them is probably, they probably have several. One of them would probably be the, uh, the section of the Shema. Some have noted here that the order of how the commandments uh, are to be worn here are displayed. First a person, um, and then next a house, and then the gate, and then a village. Or village. It, uh, there's a progression from the person to the community. Uh, the, I think the overarching message here is that they were to identify themselves as, uh, as people of Yahweh's covenant in all aspects of their life, their personal life, all the way out to the greater community, is that we are to be obedient to God, we are to love God, personally and in the entire community. Moses was teaching Israel that they could not place enough importance on teaching and passing uh, the passing of the covenant law and faith from generation to generation. It's so important. It has to be natural teaching. It has to be consistent. It has to be an important component of their daily life. So, what does this mean to me right now? So, let's turn to 1 John. That's a familiar place. So, let's go to 1 John chapter 5. Let's go to 1 John chapter 5 and read verses 1 through 5 as, as we wrap it up here. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father, so we're starting to get this uh, theme of uh, Deuteronomy, loves the Father, loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. I I stated earlier that love of God is a sign of a regenerate heart. This is for the Christian. And here we see this. We know, by this we know, one of the things about 1 John I really like is he, he gives this indication. This is how you know. This is how you know you're regenerated. That we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. The Shema, right there. And for this, for this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Love God. So we can be encouraged in in many ways here. Our love for God proves our faith. Our love for God proves our faith and our salvation. Our, Our obedience to His commandments 
proves our salvation. Our love for God motivates us to keep His commandments. That's our motivation to keep His commandments, is to love Him. Our love for God is our victory over the world. Boy, I tell you what, if you watch the news very much, it's just depressing, isn't it? Trish and I decided we need to, we need to pare down our, our um, viewing of Fox News down to maybe five minutes a day instead of uh, six hours. So <laughs> it's just depressing. But our love for God motivates us to keep His commandments. Our victory is our, over the world is the love for God. All these things are going to disappear. God is sovereign in all things, even the state of our world. If you skip way to the end of of chapter 5, verses 20 to 21, 1 John 5, 20 to 21, And we know that the Son of God has overcome and has given us understanding, thinking of our mind, that so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The true God, going back to the Shema, the Lord, your God. The Lord, the God. He is the true God. And finally, John ends with this very subtle last sentiment, keep yourself from idols. Because there's only one thing that one person that you should be worshiping that should have your full devotion your muchness your strength and that's god and as you give your muchness your strength to other things that's an idol and john says don't do that keep yourself from idols there's only one god love the only God there is. And so, we want to remember that. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Uh, We must remember there is only one God. And John knew how important this was and to stay away from these false gospels. (laughs) The Lord is our God. The Lord is our only God. And anything else that we give too much muchness to, that's an idol. John says, keep yourself from those things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for, for your word and, and uh, how interesting it is to see your entire word tie together in so many ways, uh, to see how the New Testament writers looked back at the Old Testament for, uh, and, and that was their Bible, of course. And so it's uh, it's uh, it's a joy to to see the consistency uh, in in your scriptures because that's who you are. You are consistent. You are unchanging. You are our God, and you are the only God. And we thank you for that. We thank you for our salvation in Jesus Christ. In this we pray. Amen.